Hello, my name is Veronica Gonzalez, Loyola Stritch fourth year medical student. Today I have the pleasure of introducing Louise Amat and Stefan Karuba as they discuss the night ministry and managing infectious disease care for people experiencing homelessness. So I have Stefan Karuba with me. Stefan is a senior nurse practitioner at the night ministry, and he's been working with patients on the streets for about three years now. So Stefan, do you want to tell us a little bit about the night ministry and everything that you do? Sure, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, I've been working with the night ministry full-time for about three years out on their street medicine van. Before that, I was part-time on their bus. Um, so we have different outreach. Uh, we call them platforms. Uh, we have the bus. Uh, communities know when to expect us, when we'll be there. Uh, and the point is to service, you know, under uh, uh, poorly housed and unhomeless folks in that community. Uh, the, the team usually consists of a social worker, a medical provider, and a couple outreach folks. We kind of take that same exact model and we put it on a van. And then the, that van, that street medicine van, its purpose is to search all the nooks and crannies for homeless folks specifically. So we're parking the van and wandering under bridges and up around train tracks and, um, you know, to regular encampments where we know we're going to find people down on Lower Wacker. Uh, we roam all across uh, Chicago and, you know, all the way down to 100 and 11th and Roseland Hospital, all the way up north, you know, uh, past the uh, uh, the parks up north and all the way out west uh, as far as the blue line goes. So, And then we also have CTA outreach where we're out on the red and blue lines a couple times a week uh, with that same setup, social work, uh, doing IDs, uh, trying to help people get housed, trying to help people get jobs, medical and outreach with harm reduction and things like that. So that's what we do. As far as our philosophy goes, we're not a medical provider with outreach built on. We, we were an outreach organization to begin with. And our idea, our, our philosophy is to go out and get to know people, to know their names, to know their stories, and to just be there with them. Uh, human connection is, is basically the first and most important reason we're out there. From that point, we, we build. And if folks want to do more things, want access to more resources, want help doing something different with their lives, that's where we try to help them. So it may not sound like a big difference from, say, a street medicine program run out of a hospital. I was primary care for many years. I, 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 you know, we have that clock in our head and we see someone and we want to diagnose and get them ready, get them set, move them along. But out on the street, it's a little bit of a different story. Folks, they have barriers up and protective walls for a reason. There's a lot of trauma living out there. You have to take that clock and turn it off and just be with them. And, and if they don't give you much that first time, they may tell you to go get bent the first time they see you. Little by little as you show up and, and they trust you, it's been working well for us. So something that you've seen a lot on the street, patients don't come with just one story. There's often a lot of chronic conditions that have built up over the years. In your experience, have you seen infectious disease management in this population sometimes come second or third or fourth? And how have you been able to manage it? Yeah, definitely. The, there's, there's a lot of balls up in the air for our folks, right? I mean, being homeless alone knocks 20 years off your life expectancy. I mean, so the probably the most important, best thing you can do for someone's health out, outcomes is to get a roof over their head. The National Coalition for the Homelessness states that lack of housing is unhealthy, traumatizing, and significantly shortens an individual's life expectancy. People who experience homelessness have an average life expectancy of around 50 years, 
almost 20 years lower than house populations. The CDC states that people experiencing homelessness are at a greater risk of infectious and chronic illness, poor mental health, and substance misuse. I mean, can, I'm not, I can't think of too many things that you can do one single act that will add 20 years to a person's life and that, you know, housing them is one of them. So that's always there. And then if you have folks with the co-occurring conditions of substance use disorder and mental health issues, well, if you can't get a handle on, you know, their state of mind and their ability to form a plan and follow through with it, nothing else is going to happen. And they're not going to take that, that regime of antibiotics. You know, they're going to lose the pills. They're going to get rolled, beat up, mugged, whatever the case may be, that infection that you're looking at right in front of you is not, you know, are they going to do the good wound care with the materials that you provided them? You have to prioritize without a doubt. And sometimes it's just, it's really overwhelming, right? Because you're just, you don't know which string to pull first. Oddly enough, a lot of times though, when folks are able to use the, the treatment, the treatment of an acute infection, they will take those medications, they will do the wound care, and they will use that as, as a trust building exercise or event where they're like, well, these folks help me out. Of course, you're always also thinking folks who are addicted, you know, their brain doesn't work A to B to C. I mean, if they're really on that rat wheel of, of addiction, they wake up and all they care about is getting their fix, keeping from getting dope sick, whatever the case is. So that's all going on. And while you're out there, you're, you're, you're waiting for that relationship and that trust that you've built over time for that break to allow you to take that step, to allow them, you know, you to support them as they're doing that. And for that real breakthrough where they're like, Hey, this is enough of this. I've got, I know I've been staring at this way to get out of this for, for six months. You know, this, this full nurse practitioner has been stopping by once a week for six months. I'm going to, I'm going to try it. And then even if they, they fall back into old, old habits. That's a step they hadn't taken and they know it's there. And eventually, you know, we do have the success stories that we hang our hats on and, and the things that we celebrate to keep us going through. While gaining the trust of your patients is critical, there are additional potential barriers this patient population may face with regards to care management, specifically with regards to infection control. Possible challenges to care providers include lack of basic infection control measures, a lack of knowledge of basic communicable diseases amongst agency staff and clients, a crowded service location that may increase risk of disease transmission, a highly mobile population, the possibility of under-vaccinated community, and issues obtaining accurate and complete immunization records. Ways providers may plan ahead include preparing explicit guidelines for agencies regarding appropriate use of PPE, specific isolation strategies and referrals, developing educational programs and materials that meet the specific needs of staff and their clients, the development of processes for post-outbreak vaccination or population at risk or those at imminent threat of infection, and taking into consideration the use of prophylaxis if available for a particular disease. We've talked a little bit about the priorities of people on the streets and the challenges that they're facing. Have you seen a change in this population is able to deal with community-acquired infections that spread across populations. Well, I mean, their their lifestyle alone leads, you know, to lower risks on some fronts than others, right? They folks living out on the street tend to be generally spaced further apart, 
for safety concerns, people walking up to them, they may be giving them a couple bucks or they may be trying to mug them, right? So, you know, they purposely isolate and they're, they they need to see people from a distance coming toward them. That's why I attribute the fact to the, the fact that they haven't really gotten slammed with COVID too hard. Also, you know, I mean, their immune systems are uh, hyperactive. They are encountering things every day that they're fighting. Then that also leads to some chronic state of inflammation, leads to some longer term issues. It definitely helps them in the short term fight off the low level infections on the regular. But in the long term, uh, we've discussed things like it could very possibly be leading to, um, you know, renal failure. We've had a lot of our clients in the last six months get on dialysis or decide they, you know, weren't going to do dialysis and pass away because um, of the association between IV drug use, you know, long term IV drug use. Um, chronic low-level inflammation and kidney failure. Long-term chronic injury is associated with the development of chronic diseases, including lupus, type 2 diabetes, and rheumatoid arthritis. Long-term IV drug use, especially with cocaine and heroin, has been linked with renal failure. In a 2011 review, Dr. Politilias states, the damage may be acute and reversible or chronic and may lead to end-stage renal failure. The involvement of the kidney in drug use is either attributed to the elimination through it, to a direct nephrotoxic effect, or through other mechanisms. Acute renal failure can be caused by rhabdomyolysis, hypotension, and dehydration, or by the direct toxic effect of heroin, cocaine, MDMA, or volatile substance use. Glomerulonephritis and nephrotic syndrome can be presented as focal glomerulosclerosis and heroin nephropathy and cocaine abuse post-infectious or associated to HPV, HIV, or HCV infection nephropathy. Chronic parenteral drug users may develop secondary amyloidosis. Finally, drug use can lead to end-stage renal disease mainly by causing deterioration of pre-existing renal disease at a higher rate. In conclusion, significant alterations have been observed in kidney structures since the use participate in drug metabolism. You've touched a lot also about injection site infections. And in addition to that, kind of also making the immune system stronger, it also introduces a whole lot of bacteria that um, really we wouldn't see in the general population. Have you noticed any trends of bacterial infections or really unique infections that you don't see a whole lot in the general population? Yeah, I don't know because we don't do a lot of cultures out there. And I know that they look pretty terrible at times, these infections. You know, we, we see a lot of endocarditis from the dragging of the, the bacteria into the bloodstream, a lot of sepsis, you know, and since our folks don't like to go into the ER because they've had a history of being treated poorly, being minimized, being allowed to go into detox, um, they wait until that last minute. They wait until the limb is actually threatened. You know, is it osteo? Where are we at? They do wait until they are too weak to stand up and they get an ambulance ride into the ER because they are so, so, you know, deep into sepsis. We see wounds that get healed on the street with good wound care and oral antibiotics that I would have never, ever thought would have healed and never would have cleaned up. And it's really amazing what, what folks can do when they, they actually say, hey, this is serious. They focus enough on it to keep it clean and they make great progress. A lot of them do. Um, but once again, that, that resistance to going in when something can be treated quickly and somewhat easily, you know, it gets put off because maybe I'm on that hamster wheel of drug addiction, but then it's like, I don't really want to go in because it's not going to be a positive experience. And 
There's also the thing that if people go in for endocarditis treatment or sepsis treatment, they're in getting IV antibiotics for, for days and if not weeks. And what happens afterward, they get sent right back out on the street. And, you know, I mean, we are obviously missing a whole lot of opportunities in that process to whether it's get them to a respite care bed where they have some time to, you know, dial down, dial into their psych meds and get on the mat treatment and knock down that addiction and start developing some healthier ways of dealing with the world around them. Or if they're right back out with their buddy in their tent, who's using, it's not really a fair position to put folks in. And we've just sunk thousands of dollars into fixing folks up and the outcomes are terrible. It's a loop, right? It's a loop that needs to be broke because it's really just a terrible way to provide healthcare. It's, it's high cost, poor outcome healthcare, and it's not helping anybody out. Many people experiencing homelessness may be reticent to seek hospital care, even for visible or systemic infections that interrupt their daily lives. Aside from the human element of past negative experiences with healthcare providers, the cost for serious infection management in the hospital can be significant. In their 2018 paper in Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Prowley conducted a retrospective observational study of inpatient discharges among private and academic hospitals in the U.S., looking into the sepsis patient hospitalizations, including inpatient, general ward, and ICU settings in adults over 18 in visits between 2010 and 2016. A clear trend toward increased resource use and costs and poor clinical outcomes was associated with increasing severity. Additionally, average costs for hospitalization of sepsis was present on admission were around $18,000, compared with $51,000 for sepsis not present on admission. Not included in these costs would be post-discharge care. While 52% of patients were discharged home, 28% were discharged to other forms of supportive care, including skilled nursing facilities, rehabilitation, and long-term care. Concerns stemming from a previous hospitalization could contribute to patients presenting later, only exacerbating the problem for both the patient and the health system. You mentioned that they have remarkable recovery from infection despite being exposed to a lot. What do you attribute their ability to, to come back from an infection? The average person on the street may be able to do the same thing, but we never allow them to get to that state is what, you know, I don't necessarily feel like they have some magic tonic out on lower whacker that allows people to recover quickly or, or better from worse wounds. I just think that as providers, we don't let that happen. So when folks, when we see that, we're just continually amazed that, wow, I can't believe it's, it's fixing that problem with that minimal amount of, of intervention. It's just the bar to which we've grown accustomed to practicing or, or the level at which, you know, that level of care that we would never in a clinic, in a primary care clinic, in a wound care clinic, we would never let them get to that point. When I worked with the night ministry, I noticed there was a lot of cases where people would lose their antibiotics. They would get stolen. They wouldn't end up taking the full regimen. And I know that that can lead to a lot of resistance in populations. Has there been a shift in what you use despite a lot of people not finishing regimens or, or you know, maybe obtaining resistance? You know, it, it's a big concern for us out there. So we tend to start with Bactrim because of the, the coverage of, of MRSA. And it does a very good job so far. It really does. We'll use, you know, cephalexin for lower level cellulitis changes and stuff. The issue is that resistance building up. It's so much of a concern that we've approached this week. I approached uh, some pharmacists with the hope of 
what's the best way to approach this, right? I mean, how are we being good, good stewards of the antibiotics and of our, our clients? And then you're just stuck with that human emotion where I want to help this person. They keep using, they keep using, you know, in ways that are not clean and ways, and they have access to this stuff. And, you know, I'm thinking of a specific client who's just every six weeks has an infection and he knows he's a smart man. He, he knows what's going on. And he, the last time we treated him with a, a full regime of Bactrim, it didn't, it did not do the trick. So we had to then go up to Doxy and, you know, pretty soon, what are we left with? Like, you know, ordering two different antibiotics that cross cover and expand the spectrum. And it's, that's a discussion where uh, that's ongoing at our, at our provider meetings, you know, where do we draw the line? And we obviously do not treat if some, if we feel something is beyond the scope of an oral antibiotic, we do not prescribe. And we say, Hey, you got to get into the ER. That's going to require an inpatient stay. So that's about, that's an easier line to draw. Shifting gears a little bit. I know that there's always a lot of more of the chronic diseases, viral diseases like HIV AIDS. How has your experience been with treating people who have HIV? What do you see as a big challenge for people in terms of those viral infections that they live with for the rest of their lives? From in my experience, uh, folks fall into a couple different categories. The one is don't test me. I don't want to know. Right. Uh, the other is, uh, you know, and, and it seems to be a little different between hepatitis and HIV. The folks I know who are aware of their status as being positive and they can get care, they very often do. They may fall off it for a couple weeks here or there and then have to get restarted. But a, the vast majority of folks that know their status as being positive are plugged into a clinic. They're getting good regular care. They know that they have to check on their their labs on the regular. They know why. They know what numbers they're looking for. They've been educated, and it and it's going pretty. You know that that seems like that part of our system is working really well. The hepatitis people will very much, very often, in my experience, if they are tested and they are positive for it, they'll let that slide for whichever reason. They don't feel the the urgency or the need to treat it right away until maybe they're inpatient for something else, and then their status gets checked for them. And then they know that way. And then there definitely are folks who they know that they're high risk. They know they're rolling the dice and they're just going to wait maybe until they get into recovery before they cross those bridges and deal with, you know, there are great resources out there for our friends with hepatitis. I love being able to get them hooked up to those. Since 2014, direct acting antivirals have dramatically changed treatment options for hepatitis C. Direct-acting antivirals are almost 100% effective in curing the disease with minimal side effects. The course of treatment is also much shorter than previous regimens, ranging from 8 to 12 weeks rather than a full year. However, the cost of these medications are still a considerable burden. While originally a full course would cost around $100,000, the advent of generics brought down the cost to about $25,000. Now, many insurance plans provide coverage for the treatment and several resources that are available for those who need financial assistance. In terms of treatments like PEP or PrEP, how have the attitudes been in relation to things like prophylactic treatment? Definitely. We've had some really good experience with sex workers and PrEP where they'll come to us and they'll say, Hey, I know I'm, know I'm high risk and I don't 
want to convert. So let's, let's get this going and, you know, we can do that. And that's wonderful. Then of course you have folks who don't want to talk about HIV and you want to respect their wishes, but by the same token, you're like, this is a really important thing because if you deal with it a little bit now, you could keep yourself from having a whole a lifelong of trouble. So yeah, anyway, we, we've, it's wonderful with some folks who are, um, whether they've already been educated, I'm not sure what, you know, the, 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 the V in the road is, is whether why they go, why they're open or why they're not, and whether it's wrapped up in culture and religion and what their experience and all this different stuff. But definitely the sex workers seem to be more understanding of the advantages to using prep. And then we have had a fair amount of folks who've had a one night encounter and they come looking and saying, Hey, I don't know that partner status. And I think I should probably be on the post exposure just to be safe. So those, those, I think the word of mouth is getting out a little bit better that we can plug folks into those resources. We're also trying to develop a partnership with Howard Brown, where we could prescribe them ourselves off the, off the bus, draw the bloods and the needed labs we need to do. So we'll see how that works out. PrEP is a daily pill that consists of two antiretroviral medications used in the treatment of HIV, enofovir and emtricitabine, and commercially packaged as Trivuda or Discovi. When taken as prescribed, PrEP has been shown to reduce sexual transmission of HIV by 90% and reduce risk of transmission through the use of injection drugs by 70%. People experiencing homelessness are at an elevated risk of HIV infection, with studies showing that they face three to nine times the risk of infection compared to their house counterparts. One study also estimated that half of people living with HIV will experience homelessness or housing instability following diagnosis. In 2019, the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council released a fact sheet on PrEP for HIV. They recommend that while PrEP is highly effective, it may not be the best fit for every individual served. Other prevention strategies that could be considered include diagnosis and treatment of other sexually transmitted infections, health education, including condom use, HIV testing and connection to treatment to reducing viral load for those with HIV, needle exchange and other harm reduction programs, and access to substance use treatment. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what resources around us right now. I know there's a lot of clinics that you all refer patients to. The Illinois Harm Reduction and Recovery Coalition, which is an advocacy group trying to work on clean um, clean injection sites and safe injection sites. Folks can, we can, you know, knock down the overdose, but also in that moment, open them up to the possibility of primary care and bridges to Matt and different things like that. The Westside Opioid Task Force is a huge, is a wonderful coalition with uh, folks like Thresholds, uh, the outreach teams. The city has been, with our new administration, has been very focused on helping get people off the street, helping to knock down that uh, overdose number, those numbers, that astronomical numbers that we're seeing in Chicago. Uh, the city's doing some really high-tech mapping on the west side to try and pinpoint what's going on. They're also training ambulance folks and a social work response team in two different communities, one on the north side, Lakeview, one on the south side, the Grisham neighborhood, to respond to psychiatric issues that are not dangerous and are not uh, medical in nature with the idea of trying to de-escalate and trying to plug those folks over the course of the month after that 911 call into primary and psychiatric care. So there's some really good things going on. Uh, we've, we see every FQHC as a partner 
we because every time we see someone, we're trying to get them plugged in. And we're like, what's your closest FQHC? Here are the walk-in hours. Let's make you an appointment. You know, let's get you back into the system. And then when you start in using telemed and you start using technology to leverage what can be done from a distance and knock down those barriers that are that a person that's housed and has a car and a job do not have so that they can make that follow-up appointment and they can build that trust. With Heartland Alliance, we definitely, they have two wonderful clinics that are accessible to our folks, one down on 55th and Halstead and one up on, I think it's 1015 Lawrence uh, toward the north side off the red line there. Folks can walk in there, get the treatment. They have showers, they have laundry services for folks, they have dental, they have pharmacy, all right there, which kind of leads me to the, the, the idea that when, you, when we engage somebody on the street, that's a really golden moment because we don't know when we're going to see them again, right? They may not have a phone, they may not be reachable. So we need to try and have everything, just the Rolodex of resources. Where are you at? What do you need? Here you go. And can we supply it in that moment? we're going to make more headway and more changes. So that's how we're gearing our outreach. And that's how we see the coalition and the cooperation. If we can't provide all those resources, but we have, you know, we have friends, right? And this is, you know, I'm going to call up, you know, Joe, and we're going to get you what you need. So, you know, that's the the summary of the book, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I wanted to wrap up with talking about programs you think we would need as we evolve and and develop the homeless healthcare services in Chicago? You know, in Chicago, before COVID hit, we had kind of launched this collaborative uh, street medicine slash outreach worker collaborative that includes social workers, outreach workers, harm reduction folks, street medicine folks. You know, and each of the medical schools have their street med chapters out there trying to do good work. We've been trying to plug into different parts of the fellow and resident programs to have different providers, not only to provide the different care that is needed when we don't have a provider on staff, but also so that provider is exposed to the realities of of the lives these folks lead. And hopefully we'll go back and start being an advocate for change of the culture of how we work as a medical system with homeless and addicted folks. The ER is, is point of contact for many of them. Change, for one, documenting homeless status. We, we don't do that. We don't know who's homeless, which means we don't, if, if you treat a homeless person as an, a housed person, your expectations on their ability to follow up, know what day it is, have a cell phone, have transportation are completely wrong. And so the care plan you come up with is probably not going to be close to attainable for that person. So we can, you use the data to drive the changes in the system that we need. Well, how big is this problem? What's going on with it? We don't, we don't even have an idea yet. We need to give our doctors and nurses in the ER, the resources, the time, the bandwidth to make that point of contact with homeless and addicted people really worthwhile and impactful so that they have that ability. They'll be empowered. Part of the problem is in providers in the ER know they don't have anything they can do to help that person in that moment. And so our systems need to to have that change so that when our folks do come in, these are folks who have fallen through the system. They're not engaged in primary care. They're not engaged in any care. How do we, how do we suck them back in? And so outreach is a big piece of that. The stuff all the street med teams are doing, we're going out there and we're pulling them back, but they do touch the system. They do come in when they need to. And what's going on through that entire arc of their inpatient stay? Have they have social work to help them get IDs? Had they get signed up for Medicare, Medicaid? 
you know, and when they come out, is there any type of warm handoff coming back to the outreach folks to make sure, is there a medical respite? I mean, this is a whole part of our medical system that is, is really in its infancy. It's really underdeveloped. So that's my hope is that as, as we talk about this, as we sit down and visit, as people come out and, and, and take runs with us and runs with different um, street medicine teams, they can see where the places, the, the system can be improved. And throughout your careers, you'll be able to be advocates for that. Thank you so much, Stefan. You all at the Night Ministry have done so much to advance the progress in homeless health care initiatives, and I think can serve as a model also for other cities and other programs and organizations like the Night Ministry are, are a huge part of the solution. So I appreciate you taking the time to be on this podcast. Thanks for having me. Hope to see you all out there sometime. Thanks to Stefan and Louise. Make sure to check out the rest of our Street Medicine podcast series.